it's like we all really were in a lodge together. It's, it's exactly mm-hmm. like that. And, you know, I got a text message from um, David Pasquese a couple of days ago, you know, uh, and just saw Linda Eman on a beach, socially distanced in Provincetown, you know, for, for a sunset. And it just, it we're very much like a lodge (laughs) all of us you know fans cast and crew um yeah Hello and welcome to another episode of Pod 49, the Lodge 49 fan show where we look at everything involving the TV show that we love, that is lives on in our hearts and on Hulu, unfortunately no longer AMC. As you know, we're doing our season one rewatch with very special guests who we'll in- introduce in just a quick second. Uh, Jim, do you want to give us a rundown on who the particulars were in crafting episode five? Absolutely. Uh, The title of the episode is Paradise. The writer was Alina Mankin, and the director was Trisha Brock. Awesome. And we love, because we love the music on Launch 49, Thomas Patterson and Andrew Carroll, we love to run down the needle drops. This one was another, I have to say, kind of tracking these over time, season one had more needle drops than season two, if you're scoring at home. And in this episode, we had Morgan Delt's Some Sunsick Day, the superimposers with Chasing the Tide. Uh, the official Lodge 49 house band, the sound carriers with uncertainty, Norma Tanjaga, Tanega, a street of rhymes at 6 a.m. Jack Gold Orchestra, it, it hurts to say goodbye. Although even the names are uh, beautifully matched here. The Californians, Golden Apples, and uh, of course, Andrew Carroll with a song, not just a score in this one, uh, Superus Sicut. In Ferris, and I'm sure I butchered the pronunciation of that. Uh, all right, Jim, why don't you introduce our special guest, fourth in fifth chairs, on our breakdown of Paradise? All right, we are joined by Sonia Cassidy, who plays Liz on the show, and also Carol Cutshaw, costume designer. Hi. Thank Welcome. you for joining us. We're very happy to have you. Hi. Good to be here. Well, we just have to say we are just ecstatic that both of you have agreed to join, you know, we, we've been amazed that we've gotten anyone to, to join that isn't Jim Barter myself, let alone such uh, huge folks in the production of the show. And we also love the combination of on-screen and behind screen talent and energies that go into creating the show, because you really can tell the kind of, uh, you know, just the, the, the chemistry, the alchemistry between the, the what went into making it and what went into acting it is so apparent. So we'll, we'll jump in a little bit. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit, Carol, we'll start with you. Tell us a little bit about what you're working on, what's your life been like uh, since the, the closing of the physical lodge and the opening of the metaphysical lodge? Um, right now I am on a AMC television show called Kevin Can F Himself. And we just have a couple of weeks left to shoot. Uh, we're in New England, outside of Boston, and um, I'm here with a few Lodge peeps, so uh, we say we've got a little bit of the magic dust with us. Um, I'm with uh, Nina Jack and Valerie Armstrong, and um, yeah, this is season one, and with the pandemic, it's taken us uh, this year, 
on and off to do these eight episodes. So it's been, um, it's been, it's been a very interesting year. And I'm just so grateful to be working. And Sonia Cassidy, of course, who plays Liz on Launch 49. Thanks again for joining us today. And tell us a little bit about, I mean, in clouds of secrecy, I understood. Uh, NDAs have all been signed. But tell us a little bit about uh-huh. your, your life post-Lodge. Oh, well, there is a Lodge-shaped hole in my life since um, since we finished that joy. Um, but uh, yes, I'm actually in... Hungary at the moment in Budapest. Um, I'm afraid I can't yet say what it's on, but um, I'm very well. I'm with a lovely cast and crew. And um, yeah, like Carol, very grateful to be back at it after a year where I think, you know, many of us kind of expected not to be working for a while. So yeah, it's, it's great to be back at it and also have a change of scenery. I feel very lucky for that right now as well. But yeah, it's interesting what Carol was saying earlier about this bond between those of us in the lodge that has never gone. And it's been so lovely to follow what you guys have been doing and other fans of the show throughout that. Yes, sadly, although there is no season three, it, it feels like the lodge is still there with us, which is a really wonderful feeling. So it's lovely to be joining you today. Well, thank you so much. And they are going to be joining us in our uh, deep dive breakdown of episode five. And so we start off really looking at some big takeaways for this episode or big themes or, you know, kind of what struck you. And I'm going to tag it off to, to you both to start us off. Although I will compliment you both for choosing episode five uh, because episode mm-hmm. five to me is kind of a, a time capital episode in the run of Lodge 49. Sonia, take it away. What yes. were some of your big takeaways from this episode? Uh, the fact that I have laughed harder than I have in a long time and also was so deeply moved in the space of an episode. And part of what made me completely fall for these scripts when I auditioned for the role was that within a scene you could go from laughing to being deeply moved and so I feel like episode five sums up the very best of the show and what Jim does in that you know you've got the moment with Blaze and the parasite coming out of his nose, which just destroyed me and was so funny. And is Dave Pasquese at his just most brilliant best. And it's absurd and shocking and hilarious. And then by the end of the episode, you've also got the fight between Liz and Dud that I think as an audience, we've seen that. We felt that brewing for a long time. It's been this ominous kind of elephant in the room. Do you understand how completely miserable you are? You get to live in a nice little bubble, and I get to pay for it. I pay for everything. All you care about is money. That's well, someone it. has to. You never will. You are just like death. Yeah, well, I hope I am, because he was the best guy that I ever met. Oh. He knew how to enjoy life. He was happy. Yeah, that's your biggest delusion of all right there. Really what? Dad was faking it. The dead have been crushing him for years. Years! He couldn't deal with it, so he decides to check out. Jesus Christ, Liz, he he drowned. No, he knew exactly what he was doing. He body surfed every day of his life. You you actually think he drowned? I don't know. I don't know what happened out there. Maybe, maybe, maybe he had a heart attack. He could have gotten caught in a rip. Maybe 
You got attacked by a shark? I don't know. A shark? But you'll believe anything as long as you don't have to face the truth. Dad wanted to die, Dad. He killed himself, and deep down, you know it. And they're both desperate for closure of some kind and a connection to move on, but they can't. And so um, I feel like with a couple of our leads, things came to a climax in a way that was deeply moving and also helped provide a catalyst for what comes later in um, in the show and where they move on beyond. Mm-hmm. Carol, what about for you? When you rewatched it, what were some of the things that just sort of struck you? So I haven't been able to sit down and really rewatch it uh, in some time. And so I got really early this morning because I just wanted to start at the beginning. And, you know, I watched the first few episodes and I was just gobsmacked by how much I love it, really, and how proud I was and how much I miss it. But um, but then getting to five, you know, I started to take notes because we're about to do this and uh, just, to, just to kind of like see what my thoughts were. And all of the work that we all did collectively in world building was just showcased in five. It was, you know... It, like my broad strokes of where where my palette came from and, you know, what like concept for, for characters and, and things like that. And like Sonia said, it, it's so watching it again with a big, with a big space between, you know, was very much like watching, watching it fresh for me. And I was just completely taken away by the writing. Com- completely taken away by the story, you know, and, and how, and also just how things are built and, and this, just the structure of putting that story together technically is a marvel. I remember uh, emailing Jim when I was offered the role and I said, look, you know, Liz is feeling so clear to me. I, you know, I can't wait to delve in. There's so much for me to get my teeth into, but if there's anything else that you had in mind for her in terms of backstory that you'd like me to know about please let me know and then I can kind of work that into kind of where I'm coming from and he wrote this wonderful lengthy email back just talking about her backstory and um but it was definitely a conversation I didn't feel like this was what you have to stick to but it was just so telling to me that I was working with someone who who so clearly sees every single character, whether it's one of the leads or one of the smaller roles, like they are all memorable uh, and believable and hilarious and difficult and magical for a reason. And it's because Jim has thought of everything and cares so deeply about every aspect of the show. So, you know, whether you believe in alchemy or not, it's a fascinating kind of joyride that you can either be Liz about it or kind of go on that ride with someone like Dud or Blaze. And I think that's what Jim had in mind. And it was just a joy as an actor to be working with someone that would have that conversation and want to kind of share those ideas. Yeah, that's, that's very exciting. You don't often get that. That's unusual to be able to have those in-depth conversations and just really make sure that you're getting everything you can out of a script and the world you're creating to make it as entertaining for you guys as possible. 
Yeah. yeah there's what, no throwaway characters at all. Sorry, go ahead. No. no. One thing I, I could add to that is I felt the exact same way about, my gosh, they're so specific. There's everything, nothing is nothing. And that's what I always told everyone. Nothing is nothing. Everything is big something, you know, Mm -hmm. but, and and it's all extremely thoughtful. And it was, it was the work environment though. Imagine um, having that, having that roadmap thought out so detailed and so every single detail was uh, very thoughtfully put together and very much a puzzle piece. But yet you go in with your ideas and, and they're just completely open to them, completely mm. open. Didn't you find that, Sonia? Yeah, absolutely. It was creatively for, you know, honestly, everything was in, in Jim's head and we were peeling it out, you know, as we, as we went. But we... Um, you know, I would go to him and, and with some, you know, with my interpretation of what he'd given me and he and Peter would just look at each other and say, yeah, why not? You know, let's do it. <laughs> you know? So that, that when you have that kind of that level of, uh, of creativity, you don't always get that level of open kind of fearless, open trust, you know? So mm-hmm. I think that, that was kind of a big piece of the magic for me. You know, it is a collaboration. You're a team. I think if you work in this industry, you love working with every single person that you interact with on set, whether it's your fellow actors, costume department, every department. You're all there. You're up early. They're long days and it's so much fun, but it can be long. And yeah, you're all in it together. And so to know that the people that are at the helm are yeah, open to collaborating and hearing what you have to say because you care so deeply about making it the best it can be is um, just so, so satisfying. Mm-hmm. You'll happily get up at, you know, 4.35 a.m. for those people. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yes. Yeah. I wanted to follow up on something, a, a big theme that both of you kind of picked up on I'd love to get your thoughts on was it this did feel episode five did feel like where it locked in a little bit. I mean, I don't mean to say anything negative about episodes one through four. I love them. They're special in their own ways. You know, some, you know, especially like the, the uh, memorial episode kind of felt, you know, kind of like really tell sort of a specific story, but five, you felt like the magic come together. I think, uh, and, and Carol, you said you sort of found your palette by episode five. Like can oh, both of you comment uh, about how it just sort of felt like by five, like, you were in flow state as a show? Well, actually, the the palette came together from the very beginning. You know, um, like it, it was our, um, we had about a, I had about a two-month prep period. And, uh, you know, where we just really made sure that we knew what everything was going to look like <laughs> and, and just really worked it. And um, my palette my overall palette for the show was as if when Disneyland was built in the 1960s and all those colors were so bright and so cheerful and those color combinations were so just optimistic and happy. Um, and it, and it took off. Everyone loved it, but what if it didn't? And what if people didn't come? And what if that, you know, it, it was something that people weren't interested in doing and, uh, 
then what if it was just still sitting there and it never got another paint job and it never got updated and the California sun and the salt in the air just weathered it. And so when you look at things that, that was my whole, like the glaze, kind of the lens that the whole show was in was that when you look at something, you're not looking at what it is. You're looking at what someone had hoped that it would have been, Mm -hmm. you know? And so like the, like the colors and, and the combinations and the textures and the fibers all kind of had that look. And also then when you look at character that everyone is stuck somewhere and, and everyone that comes, my gosh, Gloria was so wonderfully completely stuck, but um, that every single character is stuck somewhere and where did they stop and what stopped them and what is it they can't get over. And so I would working with each actor we would, we would find where they were stuck, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, with Liz, I I was so like, so curious about where, you know, what stuff does she have? Like how does, what stuff does she have? What would she, what did she come here with? And, you know, it was amazing the way her apartment was like just a furnished apartment that she was kind of almost a almost crashing in for too long or something. And, um, like, like, like she got stuck there. She didn't mean to, she doesn't mean to live there, you know? And so her clothes were just as if she, she had come from having some other job somewhere and she came back home to Long Beach with what she had and she got stuck there and that's all she has. Yeah. She almost like she's stuck at Shamrocks, right? She seems to be get like sort of Mm -hmm. stuck Mm. and like willingly stuck there to some degree too. I was thinking about that scene when um, corporate comes in and she kind of just gives him the cold shoulder. um, Mm. And it's like, she just doesn't, it's, I don't know. It's very, and then he, and right after that, she then goes back and like kisses Jeremy. It's almost like she's determined not to move forward, both, you know, maybe um, in any kind of relationship with uh, corporate you know, but also not in a the life of the corporate person as well. It's like she yeah. <laughs> limbo herself. Yeah, she's in limbo. Limbo, limbo. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's Ernie said, yeah. Limbo. What what? Limbo is hell. I'm sick of it, you're sick of it. And Scott doesn't know it yet, but he's sick of it too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a sort of begrudging acquiescence to how Liz is kind of going through life and I think you're right five feels like a climax of sorts for certainly Liz and Dud I think as I was saying that it is the sort of elephant in the room that hasn't been discussed and what I what I also loved about the episode is that there's no aspect of the show ever that is like nice and neatly wrapped up in a ribbon for you and it's then spoon fed to you like and um it is continually mysterious and deeply human and so the argument that Liz and Dud have at the end of five yeah they don't kind of hug and make up afterwards it's left open-ended and throughout six you know they are still reeling from that slightly and there is a sense of you know a flowing forward as you were saying as a, a, a moving beyond but it's it is not going to be easy but I think watching it uh 
it's both painful to watch, but hopefully you also see like, yes, come on, you have to, there has to be a way of you both talking about this and dealing with it for your relationship as siblings, but also I think for Liz, she doesn't have anyone other than her brother and her mates that she works with at Shamrocks, like that's it. And so, you know, she's not been going to therapy to kind of talk about how she feels about, you know, her dad leaving her with all this debt and her brother being in denial. And so it comes out in the wrong way. Um, it becomes an explosion. But I think watching it, it, it's not only compelling, but hopefully satisfying to see that something is shifting. Um, the sort of tectonic plates of her world are moving steadily. And I think she needs that. And corporate is also that for her. Jeremy, bless him, is not. Jeremy is steadfast and like just <laughs> lovely, but not, you know, not where she needs to be going. <laughs> not where either of them needs to be going. Dear, bless Jeremy. No, he doesn't need to deal with Liz. But I, I agree. I was just watching it again um, by that fight you just really are ready to know what they have to say, really what they have to say, you know, and they've been, uh, they've been so clever at putting off having the real discussion, you know, mm. for so many episodes with what they watch on television and, you know, and, and how their familiar uh, kind of jokes go. But by the time they're fighting, you're, you're really ready to hear their emotions come out. You know, I, I love that scene. Mm. Yeah, I'd forgotten that uh, Liz actually kicks him right in the uh, the bite, which is yeah. pretty, pretty vicious. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, twins, they know how to get to the other one, right? Yeah. They do. It's the it's ones like you a... love the most. <laughs> you can hurt the most, sadly. <laughs> I was also thinking about how uh, Liz so definitely seems to me to be, for the, I don't know, I have tw if you don't have twins, maybe, but there's twin A and twin B, and twin A is the one that comes out first, like the older one. And so I don't, I was like, oh, I don't remember, but my, I was watching it early this morning. My kids came out. And so it kind of made me start thinking about it because they're such different personalities. And I would say really? that Liz is definitely a B. B is usually a more, I think, practical in that regard. Really? I, I don't remember if he said who was older in during the show, if they ever mentioned it, but. Um, I don't think it, it isn't ever mentioned. I think we joked, I guess we thought that Liz was slightly older, that was she was maybe eight, but I, you know. Right. You she, have twins. So this yeah, is interesting. The, the B is a little bit, I don't know. It seems to me that she's definitely the B. At least with my kids, my A would be more Dud-like and my B would be more Liz-like. Okay. Okay. <laughs> in, that, in that scene, it breaks my heart when Dud says, I think you're the one that wants to die or something similar Similar line. I'm not. It's not a direct quote. Mm. And because it's such a, I don't know, it struck me as such a wrong read of Liz's pain, you know, like it, like to me and, you know, they're kind of, it's the exiting the fight and it does take them some while to resolve. And I love that we get the fighting so early because it sets up their union in season two is so much more earned. I think, you know, when the mm. kind of super friends power team up parts kind of come back into flow, you know, we kind of, we know the journey there. So I kind of appreciated this like, revisiting how intense the fight was, but, but I was like, no, she does. That's not what she wants. You know, like it was such, it was, it, it broke my heart that like, and it showed to me anyway, other people might say that, that she does, but 
I thought it was a misreading of Liz by Dudden. It sort of showed where they were out of, you know, out of sequence to each other in that moment, and especially even exiting that fight. It, there was no resolution. I was wondering if it was that he, knowing her and their relationship, he felt like the only way to get through to her was to say something that extreme. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yes, Jim, I would, I agree. I think, um, I always thought that Liz has, um, quite a healthy relationship with the subject of death in that I think she doesn't shy away from it. I think, um, I think Dud is right to tap into her, maybe just, sitting back a little too much into life and just letting it wash over her. I think, you know, Liz and Dad, I always imagine them like entangled particles. They're so different yet, if, and they could be miles apart in terms of personality, but when one shifts, the other responds. And so I think Dad is capable of seeing that in Liz, and I think Liz is similarly also capable of bolstering dud but in that moment i think she is so deeply lonely and afraid of what lies ahead for her in life that actually you know by the end of the season when she goes into the bank and she's like i will jump off the vincent thomas bridge i i believe her um so i don't think she's flippant about it i don't think she's that's throwaway but i think dud saying that to her in that moment is um shocks her out of, as I said before, just kind of acquiescing to the shit that's being thrown to her in life and she'll just roll with it until she can't be bothered anymore. That's no way to live your life. And so actually, um, I think Dud is right to say that to her um, because I think it is deeply shocking and it is the jolt that she needs for what we then see in later episodes with her giving the corporate world ago and even if she does literally jump off the boat <laughs> at the end in a fabulous burgundy suit just the old caricature which was a lot of fun <laughs> we always joked about how like what are we going to put this in today because it's like you know jeans and a t-shirt lovely yeah. jeans lovely yeah. t-shirts yeah but um that suit you know we enjoyed the them trip. when they came along it did yeah yeah. yeah, the purple suit debuted in um, in five. Yeah. It, was, it was the debut of the purple suit. Yeah, you know, I always felt like that comment from Dud to Liz was was him being the only person who would know how to throw her a life raft. You know, yeah. and like what we've seen for all these episodes is someone who's seemingly super self-destructive, Dud, right? But what the actual is, is this is a dude who's walking around in swim trunks every day. Like he's ready for something awesome to happen at any moment. And and it's it's Liz who is really on self-destruct, you know, in, in yeah. the big picture of her life. And so um, it's like he is the one who is living in the optimism and she is the one he's trying to pull her out of her pessimism with that line. That That was how I always felt about it. Um, with those two. And I think Dad does see that. I think there's an element of worry there. And like, how do you tell someone that you love deeply and the only person you have in your life 
you're deeply worried that they are just kind of coasting through. And it can only be, I think, maybe in that moment of such extreme anger and something sort of oddly childlike about this also slightly shitty fight that they have, which I kind of loved as well, like just kind of scrapping. But um, Mm -hmm. they are adults scrapping and they're dealing with with adult life and I think um yeah I think there's a sense of Dud also just needing to like put it out there to be like I know what's going on I see what's happening here mm-hmm. and I think you're wrong about dad and I think you're wrong about how you're living your life goodbye and he just leaves her with that and I think that's quite right I think we maybe see Liz and Dud as like Liz is maybe a bit twin B but like the older one the one that's you know thinking ahead that's planning that's mature and like mm-hmm. um you know she's the mentor whereas in fact Dud just quietly slips in wonderful wisdom that I think Liz needs at times um that sort of yin and yang is there yeah I think that twins do work that way they sort of they're they can be very opposite but they sort of you know, need each other in a way, you know, like they balance yeah. each other out in a way that's, you know, that works really well. And yeah, yin and yang, that's how they are. Yeah. And I liked how Liz was very, um, you know, cause she is the more practical one, but she does need dud because she is like, you know, I think in the very beginning when we see her on the couch, she's just, she's got this really great like vulnerability to her as it's kind of washing over her. I think that she's like, you know, waking up sort of hungover and remembering mm-hmm. what sort of happened. She's, she's beginning that um, shame, the waterfall of shame or whatever she describes to Jeremy or whatever is at the very beginning. And then at the end, she's also like sort of vulnerable and by herself. Yeah. Interesting way that, yeah. I have to say, I do love all those couch TV watching scenes between them. You can tell that they just have this long history of doing that and always sitting on the same sides and everything. Yeah. <laughs> and knowing each other's TV watching language. <laughs> yeah. I, I read uh, one of the scenes for my uh, audition was a scene um, between us and sat on the sofa. And it starts with she's watching some like. Um, you know, crime show where the presenter is in a helicopter and the the robber is getting away and they're like tracking him down the 405 or whatever, you know, and she's like, oh, he's, I forget the name of the street now, but she's just, yeah, just sponge absorbing crap television. Dud comes in and joins her and they go from talking about that to like discussing money and the amount he owes her and just it, the shift in the space of two pages from something that's really simple and everyday and kind of dull to suddenly very serious. It was just so much fun to play with. But also what I loved is it's like you see two people sat on a sofa, every single person in the world knows what that is like, or most people do, you know. And there's a show in the UK called um, Gogglebox, which I think initially when it was pitched, people were like, this is never going to take off. It's basically a show where cameras are set up in people's living rooms and you're told what they're watching, but you don't see what they're watching. You simply film them responding to the television show or the news or whatever's happening. And like on paper, you're like, really? Is that going to be interesting at all? And it's been going for years and there's something about it that you're like, I just can't not watch this. It's kind of fascinating to see how people respond and interact in these moments. And so 
that's also why I loved those scenes on the sofa. I think it's, you're immediately there with them on their sofa, which is what I liked about something so simple. That's a good transition into our, we, you know, we're on rewatches and we're kind of going deep on the show. So, uh, these big themes we like to examine, we also like to look for the little small things, the little character moments or, you know, what, you know, you might not catch in the first couple of scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll go ahead and just give us a quick jump off as an example. One thing I noticed in this episode, we often commented on the lack of technology or acknowledgement of the internet in like a lot of the other themes of the show, I think intentionally. And then this, but in episode five, we get references to Instagram, Gerson's Instagram and like the remembering Liz's night. We see, you know, Liz on a laptop, which is, that isn't remarkable in general, but we don't get a lot of those kinds of things in Lodge 49 because I think it's about being present and about community. So I was just sort of struck about how much technology does on a cell phone or flip phone. Um, we see technology kind of reared its head in this episode in a way that you don't necessarily see on Lodge 49. So that was a little, little piece of flavor I picked up on this one. What about the rest of you? What were some other small or kind of, uh, you know, special smaller moments you picked up on? Um, so, you know, in the very beginning, when uh, when they see the mirage of Bill coming out of the pool supply store, um, he's in a uh, 1950s mariachi camp shirt, short sleeve cotton button front shirt. And I think that is the first time that we see him wear it, but it's a shirt that Dud has been wearing. And that was, it was uh, for me... I had that shirt just like as someone who collects really cool vintage clothing, I had that shirt. And then when I first got the script for the, to interview and to put together, you know, a presentation and an interview for it, that actual shirt was like my talisman almost, you know, like my creative seed was like, Oh, this, I've got this shirt. And so it was always around. And then in fittings, I tried it on Wyatt and then I tried it on, uh, on Bill Dudley and um, and it fit them both. And then just kind of fitting that moment into we start seeing the dad in the shirt that the son is kind of clinging to. And then we end with that fight that that was kind of some, that was something that was important to me. And um, and also the uh, that golden plaid flannel shirt that Dud wears throughout uh, the episode just about that was my dad's. And that was something in my dad said I had been clinging to. And there was just, it was, there was something very cathartic for me and very healing for me um, in kind of just giving that to the lodge, you know, just handing, handing it, handing it over and putting it there, you know, but yeah, there was, it was a lot about hanging on to things that belong to your loved ones for me actually carol i wanted to ask you about that shirt because one of my moments was when dud is he kind of crouches or kneels down to talk to gloria's mother he's Mm -hmm. got that shirt on the gold and then and then there's the gold in his his beard and his hair and then on a ceiling fan behind him too i'm like there's all this like nice like golds and yellows going on and and i i found myself on these rewatches, noticing color more and how mm-hmm. it's used. And I just had rewatched episode three as well. 
And there was one moment where I was like, oh, blue is everywhere. There's like a blue napkin and a blue shirt and blue over there. And like, I just, I, I was wanted to ask about that sort of the approach to color as a theme. We were, Michael Shaw, our production designer, and I um, were completely devoted to the color of this show. <laughs> 100% completely devoted to the color of this show to the point that, um, you know, we would we would go back and, and just kind of marvel at when we got it, you know, um, and marvel at the, at the other person, how we would counter each other. But that is also being given that time to prepare, you know, and to really, really, really build the world. Uh, but a lot of, um, you know, I told you about the Disneyland planet, uh, palette and, um, but also kind of with dud, I, there were moments where I felt like he was really celestial and kind of when you look at some of the alchemical and especially the, um, like illuminated manuscripts and things like that, um, you'll find these color combinations of golds and blues and it's always celestial and, you know, that kind of thing. And so, uh, I tried to, I definitely tried to do that with him, you know, with the, with the golds and blues and soft blues and, and that type of thing. But, um, I think it just was a, I think it just was a matter of that. We really all were working toward the same goal. You know, we really, everyone was really on the same page. All right. So, uh, I had a couple small moments. Um, one was, um, I think my favorite is when we see Scott reenacting the worm thing for Connie and Ernie's looking through the window watching that. <laughs> and so Scott's like, you know, pulling his hand, you know, as though he's pulling a worm out of his nose. <laughs> um, and, uh, oh, another one was, I f realized this time for the first time that corporate actually has a name. Uh, was it Eugene Marr? Yeah. Yeah. And for, I, I had never picked up on his actual name. Also, um, there was a quote from Blaze that I thought kind of sums up one aspect of sort of the show's, you know, uh, over, overarching themes. All we can do is manage the pain. Um, and that really Gosh, has yeah. so many implications beyond what he was talking about with the physical ailments. Yeah. The whole episode feels like that, actually. And I realized reflecting back on it when you mentioned that uh, scene with Dud and Gloria, again, it happens so quickly, actually. Somehow Jim is able to, and in the performances as well, they're able to take something incredibly serious and complex and not that is not lessened in any way, but the idea of having Gloria kneel down in front of her mother and tell her, I want you to die. Will you please, will you please die? I want you to die. It was so, so moving mm. and just awful. And at once uh, there was such a sense of release and you understood. And it's not, at no point is it sentimental. And I think that's something that we were always aware. I mean, it's in the writing. You just do what's on the page and you're in very good hands as an actor on the show. But um, I just, I loved that. And, it, and you know, I think in 
many other shows that the whole episode would be about that moment. And in some ways, fair enough, you know, it's not a light thing, but there are uh, very difficult things happening in people's lives all the time. And yet life continues onward. And what is captured in every episode of our show is that are, are the things that people are living with, be it debt or an ailing loved one or relationships or where your life is going. But the balance of that in the show is everything we've been talking about, the kind of magic and the mystery and the fact that you do have that release that I think reminds us whatever's happening, you still need that community. You still need to have somewhere you can go to just cushion the blow of your own existence. <laughs> Sometimes that's maybe a bit Liz of me. <laughs> so, yeah. When I was watching that scene again in this rewatch, I got so angry at, you know, cause you see all the descriptions of the show. And I think I had just read, as I hit play on Hulu, I'd seen some like, you know, lazy half-assed description of the show, you know, just their little, and I'm like, it's all, Oh, it's a lazy. It doesn't go, you know, all the kind of like, and people say it as compliments of the show. And I'm like, what is wrong oh. with you people? I was watching that scene. I'm like, there's nothing light. There's nothing lazy. There's nothing, you know, like all of these sort of like, bad and uh, lazy TV critic, like descriptors, not even TV critics, right? Whoever's writing copy somewhere in some corporate office for these, you know, it's just like, and then the, the larger narrative of the show. And I'm like, how can you watch that scene and say, like, use any of these kind of lazy haphazard, you know, any of these kind of descriptors that normally get tied to, you know, your 50 word description of the show. It just, I, don't know, I got angry all over again, watching that scene for that. It's so like the description of Dud as a slacker is yeah. like, uh, you know, it, not only totally missing the point, but also exemplifies what the show is sort of uh, very often against, like this sort of like, uh, like you're saying, if it's somebody writing it in some corporate office, the, the sort of uh, capitalist side of that, you know, description of it is, which is bound to miss the whole point, maybe intentionally. Um, but yeah, that was one of the things I was like, there's nothing really slacker about him except maybe appearance. But even that appearance was, was considered slacker. Like when the term was coined in the nineties. So like mm. at this point, everybody has tattoos, everybody has long hair. None of that stuff it signifies a certain type of person anymore. Also, I think so. Um, I think I remember Jim saying that, uh, you know, these characters are not particularly aspirational. They're not striving to, like, live the American dream. They're, they're trying to survive under the weight of that. But most of our characters want to live in contentment, a secure, normal life with community and people around them and just carry on with their day to day. Like, you know, Dud isn't yeah, aspiring to be this bigger thing. Neither is Liz. I think we know watching it, the corporate world is not one for her. Actually, she's capable of more, but that isn't it. And that's what I also loved about the show. It, it, there was never a sense of like, you know, these twins that are down on their luck, they just need to get out of Long Beach. They need to escape the life they've been brought up in. It's like, no, no, they need to find that world again and their place within that and be given a break um, rather than kind of catching that lucky break that sends you beyond. I think this show doesn't 
tick any neat boxes. And that's why I love it. That's why it's exciting. That's why it's different. It's a freaking unicorn. In <laughs> it's, it's the lynx ring in the sand of television, in my opinion. And I think, um, you know, as you say, with rewatching it, there is so much that you get from it. But it, it, it is kind of lazy to just label Dud as this slacker or Liz as someone that has a death wish. You know, for example, um, and I think in the writing and with every aspect of the show, we wanted to make sure that we weren't making it easy for people. But it was hopefully still entertaining, you know. Oh, for sure. Yeah, no, it is all those things and then with yeah. stuff underneath. And that's why part of why I was sort of, you know, kind of just dis- not, I mean, of many reasons disappointed that it didn't get, didn't, uh, that it got canceled because I can, it's hard for me to understand why people wouldn't find it, the show appealing. Like, even if you didn't see all the layers, like, you know, I could see, you know, I, of the many things I enjoy is a sort of anti-capitalist uh, perspective of the show. And I wouldn't expect everybody to kind of get that. And if some of them did, they may not like it because of that to some degree, but like just the, the, the community of the, of the show and the characters and, you know, what they're about, I, I find it to be massively appealing. And it, so it sort of always struck me as strange that it, it didn't have a larger appeal um, though I think as we're seeing, it just didn't really get noticed by very many people. And as it is now, it's growing and the audience is kind of growing and yeah. becoming a cult classic, really. It's yeah. literally on every list of what to watch during the pandemic. Yeah. Well, I, I, I also, I think we all kind of felt like, you know, once everyone was in pandemic mindset, then they were ready to accept it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, I don't know. It, it, you know, it's like, we no, it, this is, we're not trying to be aspirational. Don't, don't look in this story for someone yeah. who, who, you know, to admire these, you look for yourself, you know, it's, it's yeah. not, these are, these are not uh, issues that are, I don't know. I, I feel like and I heard it over and over and we would all kind of chuckle amongst ourselves on whatever text thread or DM that, um, that I think everyone can like really finally relate but also I remember uh, talking with Peter about how um, you know those first few episodes by design recalibrate your expectations from a te- from a television show and then once you once you've kind of been recalibrated um, to our pace and to, you know, the lodge world, then you can just really live in it, you know, and um, making everybody stay home and do nothing was one way (laughs) (laughs) to to recalibrate a television audience. (laughs) Um, Okay. Can we talk about Bajas yet? Yes, I think we've, we've got to talk Bajas. <laughs> we love them so much. <laughs> Carol, where's your, where's your artisanal Baja store, you know, that we, where we can all purchase these? Yeah. The, well, the most fantastic clothing line. Um, two brothers from California, and the line is called Fairty. F-A-H-E-R-T-Y, the Fairty Brothers. And um, when I discovered that line it was it was all over it was so that just you know it was just so the real deal and um and also they're a uh they're conscious 
uh, ecologically as well. And that's important to me, really important. Um, so they were the right fit, but yeah, the, the, the big, like the, the Bajas and the big striped blanket jacket, uh, were all from Faherty. All right. Good to know. All right. I'd be remiss if I didn't say how much I love the Shamrocks costumes. Um, <laughs> uh, especially, I just, you know what I love is the little detail of the little kilt purse thing, which I looked up. It's called a sporan. Mm. I never knew what a that thing sporan, called. Yeah. It's called. Oh, sorry. Yeah, sporan. Yeah. I'm not pronouncing it right. But uh, yeah, that they put their check presenter and their tab in there and stuff like that. It's just perfect on oh, all yeah. levels. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, you would use it that way, a corporate version of like uh, the, you know, trampling all over Irish culture traditions or, you know, feels no, like it's it would a classy exactly joint. Yeah, no, I know. Joint. We want to make sure you're getting the authentic <laughs> Irish yeah. very Scottish experience, Celtic yeah. experience. I was, I was really... Um, kind of enjoying being a white person and appropriating (laughs) white people's things as brutally (laughs) as I could, (laughs) Uh, you know, like the, uh, the Glengarry that they were like the lodge regalia, um, the Glengarry that they wear, uh, that was scripted. That wasn't me. That was scripted. That was Jim, um, that it was, that the hat was a Glengarry style. But then going kind of off of that and, you know, okay, Scottish, Scottish and, and I, the, the whole, just that word um, that, that Jim planted kind of led me off on this tangent of like that, that, the, that the regalia in the lodge needed to kind of feel more like community theater and more almost like a community theater uh, production of a Shakespearean play, but you know, it's a kind of regurgitated costumes or kind of stock costumes that they can use on almost any production, you know, but that, that, that was kind of how that was to feel. And, um, again, appropriating, appropriating your own things. I'd be remiss as we kind of go into the more, you know, kind of secrets of the scrolls, some of the hidden Easter eggs and and the sort of like deeper arcana in the show, in this episode, uh, kind of maybe, maybe building on this uh, reappropriation of European culture. I have to say that Ernie's throwaway line in the, when he's fighting with beautiful Jeff and Bob and in the uh, plumbing offices where he's, when they're cracking on him cause he wasn't in Vietnam, he says, Hey, I was fighting ethno-nationalism. That is just like the kind of like amazing throwaway joke line that like, it just blows open people's expectations of the show. It's smart. It's silly. It doesn't necessarily advance the plot, but it tells you immense amount about Ernie. It's laugh out loud, funny. You have to actually know what that war was to get the joke. It's, it's such a layered throwaway. And I say throwaway in a kind way, you know, but you know, joke, um, as I thought, I, I laughed out loud and it is such a textured joke. I just, and so Ernie, I just love that line in this episode. Hey, I was fighting ethno-nationalists. <laughs> <laughs> I think just, you read a lot of scripts where, you know, a lot of what you're saying is kind of stating the obvious or saying the thing that you can in fact just act and you don't need to be stating 
I don't feel happy right now. It's like, well, I can just act unhappy. Just give me an inch something else that a normal person would say. And um, that was always just a delight with any of uh, these scripts was that exactly what you're saying. There are things that will appeal to people on so many different levels that are just delicious to play as an actor. And also it's always a sign of a good script if you can learn it quite quickly and easily because it sounds the way the people speak. And I know that sounds very simple and obvious, but it is not easy to do that, to do what you've just explained, to have that much layering within one line and it not seem kind of shoehorned in to preach in some way or to kind of seem smart or to be like, I'm going to just chuck in this very niche line and pat myself on the back. Like nothing in these scripts has that, um, feel and that's um yeah just lovely to play with so mm-hmm. glad that you guys picked up on those and, that, and as you're saying the more people watch I think there's more of that to be uncovered as well mm-hmm. yeah I think like we were talking about the scenes on the couch which are so memorable and so great and I think in a lot of uh typical shows or whatever you'd have the two characters sit like there just so that they could do some exposition right so it gives mm-hmm. you them a chance to explain to the audience and so it's a ter- it's like almost a terrible throwaway sort of scene and I, I actually think that those are probably sort of difficult to write because they're you know it's it's really just about you know quick banter between two people who know very, each other very well you know doing something simple like watching tv so it, i don't know i think even that is a good example of just how uh, unique the show is and in, in its abilities to sort of portray these scenes that are um you know, interesting and not just sort of throwaways. Just like the the fact that like no, not a single character is is every single character is so well rounded and well developed. You know, I was like, mm. um, you know, and of course we love Jeremy and stuff like that. But you know, he's one of the smaller roles. But like he always his scenes are always so good. You know, he was like when he's like talking mm. to Liz and he like kicks his leg. You know, it's just like <laughs> these great little actory moments that they that everybody sort of does. You just kind of realize how how well coached everybody is probably because it starts with a good foundation of really good writing and good character development that you're, you know, they're sort of handing off to, you know, very capable actors, uh, something that's, you know, very well molded. And so, but you feel it as an audience, there's just not a, you know, moment, you know, like, like on an NYPD blue, there's always like the assistant walks into the office to give them like a paper. And then you you don't even know anything about that character and you don't need to or whatever. It's like, there's not a single moment of that in the whole series. You know, it's just like, yeah. When, uh, you know, costumes is, is kind of like the gateway, you know, where everyone comes when that, whenever an actor lands, the first thing they do basically is come in for, for a fitting. And, um, such in an exciting the, part of the process, just especially with Carol. Sorry, it just was so awesome that every single person, and it, it became this kind of, it really became a thing. Like, is, is every single person that walks through this room going to be like this? You know, and, and every single person was. That every, you know, every role was precious. Casting was... I, I just thought so brilliant, but so thoughtful beyond brilliant, you know. Uh, and also, we weren't the show where as soon as someone walked on, you needed to understand what their purpose was for for uh, moving the plot forward. You know, that that's yeah. not what we needed our, our 
characters for. You needed to uh, to understand them, who who they were. The plot would take care of itself if you just would settle down. You know, I mean, and and so uh, with it, literally with every single person that came through our door, there were so many layers of thought put into them walking through that door that by the time they did, you know, they were, they were in the lodge and, um, and it was, and, and then there were those scripts, you know, we were given, we were given so much, uh, but then we were also in so many ways given free reign. It was, that was the process, but yeah, I, I can't, one of the things that people, who we all work together, you know, um, especially in my department kept coming back to was how insanely brilliant the casting was. I'm just uh, remembering Carol conversations about shoes. I remember we would say that, you know, Liz's wardrobe, you're like, I'm so sorry. There's not, we're basically yeah, doing variations of jeans and t-shirts as I was saying, but I remember the, just thinking about the Shamrock's outfit and actually you didn't just go down there, oh, yeah, let's just craft, you know, hooters or something and have you also, you know, very respectfully for yourself and Jim, the way it was written, thinking about like this actress is going to need to be wearing this a lot. Do you actually want to be just wearing a swimsuit every day? <laughs> Which I was, um, yeah, I, uh, and so it, it just struck the balance perfectly, but I, and it was also kind of funny, like the weird, I don't know, the white socks pulled out. I just felt so uh, at once like comfortable and so strange wearing mm-hmm. this thing. And, and it was like, you know, sort of quite scantily clad yet at the same time, a kind of oddly empowering armor. <laughs> like, because that's something I know. T- I, when I got the job, I went to Hooters in LA because there's like one Hooters in the UK, I think it's in like Nottingham. It's not really, a, you know, restaurants aren't a thing in the UK. And I being very British was like, Oh, I'm going to pop there and just have a look, you know, for a bit of research. And, um, I ordered a salad and some fries, I think, and just sort of was weirdly sat there on my own around like family. I, I think people were like, what is this British woman doing here? Sat alone, not watching sports. And anyway, and what struck me was just how confident, these women were basically wearing a swimsuit. And I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to be wearing. And I wasn't, but, um, so I was so pleased to see the Shamrock's uniform, but although it seems very simple, we had such long conversations about the shoes, Carol. Mm -hmm. I'm like, should they actually look kind of slender and sort of attractive? Is there a heel? Probably not. And those black shoes that were not, great looking but were comfortable as they would be if you're working in the service industry kind mm-hmm. of found their way into other scenes as well like mm-hmm. wearing them with like a tracksuit just designed to ever so slightly continue to undermine Liz's existence mm-hmm. <laughs> this really strange collection of stuff that she doesn't care she'll mm-hmm. just you know chuck them on with anything but um yeah. I remember when in the fitting when we found how super weird it was for her. Like we would walk through, like, what did she do? Like between these scenes, right? So she's in Shamrocks. And then what is she, what is she literally doing between working and driving home? Right. And then we kind Mm. of came up with that. She, her, 
her blue sweatpants, her only sweatpants, her, mm, her blue sweatpants, yes. that she doesn't change out of the socks and shoes. She just pulls sweatpants on over the whole thing mm. and puts her hoodie and her b- big black denim jacket. So she, what she does is she puts these pieces on that completely straighten out her curves. For when she's mm. out, the second she hits the road, the second she's not in there, she completely obscures, uh, she destroys the male gaze, basically. Mm, yeah. You know, so it's like it's, the second she leaves a restaurant, she destroys the male gaze. But the, the thing that was so wonderful was she kept the white socks on and the shoes. And so it had this, from a distance, this weird kind of like Michael Jackson and Penny Loafers with white socks vibe. Yeah. <laughs> which was, Which was really nice. You know, but like as, as awful as this outfit was, there's still, I thought there was still style, you know? Yeah. And, and, but and you it put was, it on a character that was not trying to be ironic or cool in any way, which is where it kind of, it worked so beautifully. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I loved it when you stomped back to uh, the car and, yes. um, and we're screaming at the driver who's honking behind you and, that was that was in prime. I just left work. Liz, mm. fury, you know. Yeah, but yeah. But the poor yeah. vape store guy. Yeah, vape guy. Poor vape store vape guy. <laughs> it's the one-two punch of Liz and uh, yeah. Dud. You know, the twins that they don't even know that they're doing it. But you know, yeah, it's so great. Yeah. <laughs> Carol, you just answered a mystery for me because when I was watching, I think it was episode five that I was like, I was like, do they have lockers at Shamrocks? You know, because I was like. She's obviously coming from, like, you know, like, does she leave her work uniform at Shamrocks? Do they lock up, you know, like, but then, you know, she just puts the clothes on over it. But, yeah, you know, that was another thing was, oh, oh, and, and Sonia and I talked about this. It's like, does she just shimmy out of it in her car and stomp in the restaurant? You know, that was because mm. also Liz's car was kind of like her, her little like each of the, like, you know, like Dud's car was his dumpster, you know, and, and Liz's car was kind of hers where anything mm. could come out of it, it that, that was needed, you know, shimmy into these sweatpants and shimmy out of them and stomp around. Yeah. I'm trying to remember one thing though, Sonia, remember how, uh, we did your kids, your, the shoes that you stomped on Dud, those yeah. were super special. Those were super special. And we really worked those and made them really used and worn and, cr- and, and crushed the back heel in. Mm. So you could slip into them and, and kind of, um, they were like slippers, but that you could stomp or you could go anywhere in them. That was something that was important to us for sure. Yeah. They were well-worn and comfortable, but also they were like her smart attire. <laughs> As far as, mm-hmm. as far as it could get sometimes, you know, when she's moving into the corporate world, she's obviously got the old suit in here and there and heels. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, shoes are so important for an actor. And, you know, it's a pet peeve of mine. You watch whenever anyone's in a show or like on TV or on film, when you see underneath people's shoes and mm-hmm. they're not scuffed at all, mm-hmm. it's like people carrying luggage and there's nothing in it. And it's just like, or like holding a coffee cup. So I just put some water in there because the second I see like someone's feet on a desk and their new shoes, you know, they, because there's, that's what I was so again with every department in this show. And Carol is Carol's work is a perfect example of this, of the level of detail. Like if you rewatch the entire two seasons and just focused on 
the costumes, like every aspect, not only the kind of lodge regalia, but also down to something like Liz's shoes and when she's wearing them and what they do to her and how worn they are, what story they tell. Like that's all there. And I love that because it also helps. It's important for the viewer, whether you notice it immediately or not, um, because it keeps you in that world. But as an actor, it just feels bedded in in a way that it would be. Tell you guys, keep your eyes peeled for brand new shoes when they shouldn't be there. <laughs> I'm definitely looking for that. Yeah, they're going to get Carol's scuffer person. And it's one of my pet peeves for sure. Yeah, because you notice it. And I'm often being like, can we just rough these up a little bit? And just sort of, you know, scuffing them on gravel. So, yeah. Yeah. Love these kids. All right, so that's a good secret. So that can move us into some of the secrets of the scrolls, little things that we may have missed the first go around. And if you've got inside knowledge, this is the time to drop them. Um, I'll say the the one that I picked up on that I loved was Larry says he that he was finally or he's above the maze or he sees above the maze. And it almost immediately cuts to Gloria's sketchbook, which is above a maze of cubicle farm at Orbis. So we get, you know, so I just love that little, you know, like we're all trying to get above the maze and the maze can look and be different things. And we get this like immediate visual representation of what Larry was talking about. So that was like a, a little piece, a little secret there of their interconnectivity, but love to hear what some of you all, you know, found what, what, what were you seeing in the rooms in this episode? I was just I remember a lot of the stuff that I did with people, like a lot of, I, I was mostly remembering lots of, um, just lots of conversations I had with actors, you know, and, um, finding things like, um, you know, Connie had these certain necklaces that she always would wear. And uh, one of them is these little, you'd have to look closely, but they're little handcuffs. And, mm-hmm. um, and so, you know, that was, it was, that was where she was, you know, with, with uh, Ernie and with Scott and with where she was. And then, you know, further in the future, once she goes to London, she never wears the handcuffs again, mm-hmm. you know, once she's kind of free of that. So, there were, you know, Sonia, you were there. It's like there were in every department, there were, there were layers like that for everybody, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and I think it's interesting you mentioned um, Connie, because I feel like in many ways, Connie with her um, kind of strange brain seizures and kind of seeing vision, she's, I feel like with the audience, she's kind of our, oracle of sorts of like even more of those tidbits of like is this something that's just in Connie's head should we be paying it is it something that's happening that's unique to her or actually is this a part of uh the bigger picture and resolving the mysteries within this show and I think that is absolutely what was happening as we saw uh in further episodes and in season two as well with these kind of visions that Connie sees and um I always loved that. Again, it wasn't a character wasn't written with some uh, kind of traumatic health issue just for the sake of it. It mm-hmm. there is a deeper meaning. It is both deeply worrying and intriguing, and um, raises more questions that I think leaves you sort of wanting more. So that was the thing that struck me with Connie. And again, they're brief moments. If you look back, it's like when 
Ernie uh, was he looking in his wing mirror in an episode and he sees the donkey unicorn and you're a bit like did that did that really happen you're kind of there with those characters in the moment and I think although something really profound is happening to Connie it feels kind of echoed I think when you're watching it yourself Mm -hmm. yeah I agree one of the costumes I really liked this uh, episode was um, Larry Loomis with his like bluish greenish shirt and bright white pants with his mm-hmm. pants matching his like hair and how he kind of almost looked like an angel that can kind of come down from heaven. And it, I, I'm just, I was mentioning to this before to these guys, but I've kind of gotten kind of more obsessed with Larry and went on the rewatch and uh, sort of, I guess, knowing how, how deeply involved he is on the, in the whole show um, and how much he knows of the real lodge and all those things. And the, they, he mentions a couple times in the episode, but um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, you, I, I, I don't know. I just really loved what he was wearing. Did you, did you, did that have something Am I anywhere near what was going through the process in your mind at all? Kind of, okay. So the, the, the broad strokes of, of like the seed of Larry creatively, the, the, for his costumes was I, the things that I was looking at were like his age and what might've made a huge impression on him at his most impressionable age and what he might've, um, locked onto. And, um, I kept coming back to Richard Burton and, um, and so, and, and then the other thing was like that, that there were these two, like there were these two sides of his coin, right? There was what he felt like, like maybe, you know, was more kind of George Hamilton, Dean Martin. And then, but like, that was what was coming from the inside out. But what was, what people were seeing from the outside was more, a little bit more like Charles Bukowski. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it was like where it's where George Hamilton meets Charles Bukowski in a, in a, in a visual way, you know? And, um, but then to kind of this, like, well, what if Richard Burton hadn't been an actor, you know? The, and, and it's the same kind of concept of like, well, what if Disneyland didn't take off, you know? And so you see all of, all of Dud's really cottony, soft, approachable, really porous fabrics and um but Larry's are polyester Larry's don't ever fade Mm -hmm. you know so that was kind of like you so when you no matter what Larry's standing next to Dud he's going to be this you know he's kind of the Teflon man and he's kind of the that guy Mm -hmm. I love there's a couple shots where with Larry in this episode where his hair is so wispy and white that they get the light coming through the hair and it mm-hmm. definitely gives him a very beatific vibe, you know, and we're, and we're, you know, we're kind of close to his exit. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, he's imparting his final wisdoms and whatever, and you sort of, you start to see, feel that ascension part of him in this episode mm-hmm. and the, just the way his backlit hair, I was like, Oh my God, that it really is. It's, it's angelic, right. You're starting to see yeah. the rise. Mm-hmm. Well, definitely with, um, with Larry, it was, it was almost like he, we, he was the sovereign protector, right? Like, so he was the king. So there was like with everything that I put him in, it definitely needed to have that kind of glow and that kind of like one level up. Um, and it, when he's standing with the, with the white pants and the green shirt, he's against the sky, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, that was that that we definitely took the sky into account there. You know, I mean, I wasn't thinking angel thoughts, but um, but most definitely, you know, they say we always need to see him and know that he's the king. Right. And so what what is it's always where is he and how can he pop out more? stand out more, be higher, have the frequency be higher, have the contrast be a little bit higher, especially like any that my absolute favorite, it wasn't this episode, but when he is sitting in the sanctum sanctorum with, uh, with Ernie and Ernie is always, Ernie is more, you know, really in tune with everything. And, and, um, and whenever you see, gosh, whenever you see the three of them standing, Larry and Ernie and Dud, um, that's when I get butterflies, <laughs> you know, like visual butterflies. When you can, whenever you can see the three of those men together, um, but uh, but you know where where Ernie feels warm and and intrinsic, Larry feels uh, ceremonial, you know. That's it. Can I ask you? I don't know if you know the answer to this, or uh, uh, but I also noticed on the second watch that Larry has a giant scar going down the middle of his chest, which I guess is supposed to be either he could the uh, Kenneth Welsh could have that in real life, or it would be one of those no stone unturned of the lodge where it's like, well, we know he's had a bunch of heart attacks. Well, he has so, a bypass yeah. in the that's beginning right. of the season, right? A quadruple bypass or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's Ken's. That's Ken's. Oh, really? Problem. Oh wow! So it is just a real scar because it works. Wait, for the wait, wait, wait. I, That's I'm not you sure. Can... I'm not sure if that one's the real one because he's got one on his leg. This amazing scar on his leg that was real. Did we ever see it? The leg. I'm going to look for it now. I'm going to look for yeah. Ken's. Yeah. 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 Well, there's that naked scene. So. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, there was that. Just... Yeah. <laughs> Lodge super fans, you, everyone, you know, and once we uh, drop this episode, everyone can go into the uh, deep rabbit hole of, of Ken's scars, real or, or fabricated for this <laughs> I will say I had a moment on my trailer where um, Ken and Joe Grafasi hadn't seen each other for many years. And they had, uh, they had worked together as young men um, in the theater in New York and, I cannot begin to tell you what a pleasure it was to be in the middle of a boxer shorts fitting with Ken when <laughs> Joe Pop comes on my trailer. And I, I absolutely love these actors, both of them. And to see them just carry on and compare bellies and just hug and kiss. <laughs> and it was, you know, these, these are the moments. <laughs> it was just the most beautiful thing. I have photos. um we didn't we we didn't talk about bert too much in this episode but he's got when he says when he's like this is literally the worst decision you could make about when he's giving the loan terms i don't know terrible terms yeah i'm giving you terrible terms here or when he says uh bert is just such a genius character on so many levels and so easy to Mm. and so deep at the same time but when he says uh uh, you're you're a day away from being late on your note, but you know, no rush considering <laughs> the <Yeah>. interest. <laughs> no rush. Eighty nine percent. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so th- Chris, okay. it's time for for Chris's tarot corner. 
Uh, oh, Chris's tarot corner. So we kind of touched on it a little bit. Um, we've been tracking the use of tarot card imagery and themes, which, you know, we really wanted to go deep. There's all kinds. And if you have any inside tips on, on Jim's affinity for the tarot card and behind the show, we'd love to hear them. But I, the, the scene, we talked about the, the coloring, but the fight scene to return to that, Liz is such bathed in such red, uh, you know, in terms of the lighting and that, and then Dud is in a kind of mix of the blue and gold. It's a little bit more gold in that scene, but, um, mm-hmm. and so red, uh, is usually associated with, with the wands in, in the minor arcana. So the wands is red. It's usually your, uh, emotions. Um, and it's also your brain. And then Dud, depending on how you interpret the coloring, but I think overall Dud is much more of a blue, Carol, as you said, over time, you know, you see him in a lot of blues. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's usually associated with the cups sweet and its element is uh, water and mm-hmm. usually much more emotion with the emotions. So I, Bart, I think found maybe a card above the mirror uh, when Larry's looking at himself in the mirror, but we couldn't make out any of the details of it. So we're not exactly sure in other episodes, there's been overt, you know, the camera literally goes to a tarot image is not no mistaking mm-hmm. it. Uh, they're not always there, but that's our tarot corner for the day. We, we saw the, we started to see the, the, the sweets that are associated with Liz and dud. All right. That gets us to, uh, alchemist of the week where we look at we all pick who we think you know did the mo- you know enacted the most change was the superstar of the episode in some way made some kind of alchemical change we all are going to have our own interpretations and if we have the same that is totally okay as well mm-hmm. uh, i'll kick it over to our guests to start it off uh, and you can name your alchemist of the week or maybe we could go first and get a war- running start for them and they can, maybe they're not really ready just yet. And we could, uh, although sometimes I've, got, going, I've been thinking about this. I've got a few, uh, oh, okay. but yes, yeah, start. No, no. Or you can go first because you, if you well, don't Bart, want to, you go first. Hard to well, okay. I, um, yeah, I thought, I thought that there was a lot of, uh, alchemists this week. I, th- I thought, um, it was pretty interesting. So I'm going to go ahead and, go with uh larry because i've become kind of uh, uh, obsessed with him in this second time around watching season one and how important he is and um you know i just i really love this sort of like idea of him understanding what is going on with the lodge on the higher level he's sort of above the maze and his kind of passing of the torch to uh dud and um you know, he kind of like does, there's this one scene when he's on the phone with um, Ernie um, and then like uh, Larry just sort of shows up and kind of apologizes for punching him in the face. And then he says this thing like, I'll come find you, you know? Um, and so then, he, you know, doesn't really answer like how he's going to do that. And then the next time you see them together, they're having ice cream and he's, you know, making these cryptic sort of statements that Dud is kind of hanging by a thread and, um, and you sort of realize, obviously, like he it's it's almost like as if the, a lot of this episode I felt was about his ultimate death, which is he, he is now seemingly embracing. Um, he seems to be kind of upset a little bit when he sees the bench that's in loving memory to him, even though he's still alive. But then he embraces it and starts laughing and kind of, you know, sits there like a, posing for a picture. So I just there's a lot of, to me, I think, about his um, embracing about, you know, his death it's like he knows it's coming and he's kind of okay with it and i know he gets like 
wasted and he's naked, but it's almost like as if he's returning to normal. And there, um, I would say also my little Easter egg of the week was something I didn't notice the first, you know, a couple of times I watched it was when he's looking at the picture of his mother, um, she blinks and, yeah. um, <laughs> and it's, I just never noticed that before. And, um, this I'd like kind of concept that I think that, um, when right before death, people, uh, sometimes mention or say their mother or something, this is something that actually really happens. And, um, so I thought it was like, it's, it's all these different emotions. It's, it, there's like a tenderness to it. Um, there's all these different emotions except fear in a way, you know, like he seems to be sort of very, yeah at ease with it. And he's, you know, like, I love the way he's walking around in the white and blue and he's just sort of bright and loud and everything mm -hmm. sort of about him is that. And, um, you know, his, it seems that like he, he really understands Dud to be his successor, which I think is why he punches him in the face because it's a little bit hard to accept that you're being replaced. Um, but then he does sort of accept it. So I'm rolling with Larry. And if you're deducing the runes of this episode in this podcast, the blinker is our next special guest on looking at episode <gasps> six. Nice. So we'll oh, say no lovely. more. You can deduce oh, from there. It's not a very hard riddle, but you can go from there. So <laughs> heavenly. You will yes. just love her. Oh, we just, we just all really, really love her. <laughs> well, a show filled with uh, great episodes. She's like this main central character of probably my favorite episode. So I'm very excited about that as well. Yeah, that's great. All right. Who's else got another candidate for Alchemist of the Week? Hmm. I'm, yeah, I'm going to go with Dud, actually. I think, you know, we're at the midpoint of the show, and I think we're seeing the real impact that the Lodge is having on Dud in a way that, that shows how important he is is to other people, how impactful he can be on other people's life. I think when we see him with Gloria and with Liz in this episode, he is the anchor. He is uh, their strength in that moment, um, albeit in very different ways. And I think that's something that, you know, like we touched on earlier with Dud, of kind of, I think some people second guess him and underestimate what he's capable of. And I think in... Episode five, we see him step up to the plate in a way that we perhaps don't expect. And it um, it changes Gloria and it changes Liz. Um, yeah, changes their chemistry um, in a really memorable, meaningful way. So I'm going to go with Dad. Uh, and in a sense, Blaze for also literally producing <laughs> yeah, Parasite from his nose. I mean, on some level, it's Parasite. But, you know, yeah, Dad. I'm going to go with lovely Dad. You know, I, I tend to, I, I can go with that. I was thinking of all the people that change, but it's it's Dad who kind of uh, greases the wheel and kind of, he's kind of the escort, you know, mm. or the 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 person who, I mean, he's there with Blaze when he's kind of, you know, telling him about the parasite and, you know, it's, it's almost like he does is the uh, facilitator of the episode for almost everyone. Mm. You know? Oh yeah. And he's there but with Blaze. What do you call Like a doula? He's like helping him sort of, you know, <laughs> spell. <laughs> that's right. I mean, that's right. And, and also that is, 
<laughs> my my absolute favorite um, kind of facial uh, acrobatics of the episode is Dud's reaction of both horror and extreme delight at, <laughs> at, in in moments, you know, mm-hmm. at, at Blaze's um, parasite moment. Um, but yeah, it's almost like he goes through the episode just kind of facilitating everybody's, you know, he starts on the phone with um, with Ernie about... Don't worry about it, I got your back. We're in cahoots. We are not in cahoots, okay? We're in cahoots, it's okay. I'll, I'll jump in on that because Dud was part of mine. And by the way, just to extend the tarot corner, Dud is obviously the fool who has wisdom and lead, leader of journeys. So mm-hmm. uh, a good little connection there. Um I though I do I to me the alchemist of the week was a combo of the Gloria and Dud because I actually mm-hmm. felt like the transference was both ways it was kind of a it was there was a, there was a balance of that because Dud is definitely he's a different person on the other side of the Gloria relationship and he helps her through that moment. And so I think there was something about the, the relationship and it was short lived, right. And at one point, um, blaze says that gold is actually just the sort of byproduct of the transformation. And it's like their relationship, which was short lived was the sort of byproduct of what they gave each other. And for them both to move on, you know, the, that, that, that relationship, the romance, whatever was the sort of like, the waste, um, the non-toxic waste, we'll call it, um, that, that was, that came off of that. So I kind of considered that little moment there that kind of, maybe, maybe it's two people. So I'll call it the alchem, the, the alchemical moment of the week for me, but it was that, that exchange there. Yeah. Jim. Uh, all right. So I'm going to go and I just came up with this now. So, um, hopefully I can articulate it. I'm going to repeat my nephew Avery's, pick from when we he did a uh, episode two with us and say jeremy um mm. because he you know expressed these feelings to liz and then gets all the way around to they have this awkward most awkward kiss in television history <laughs> <laughs> and then he realizes like oh no this isn't that isn't right like i need to move on and just that's not the direction this should be going in I feel like he gets to a different place. So, yeah, and also I just wanted to throw in I've, one of my quotes that I forgot to mention. I, I love it when he says to her, you're so competent. Hey, she'll take it. <laughs> um, so <laughs> if we can uh, just divert a little bit, I wanted to ask you, Sonia, about your Instagram account, Ms. Filmmaker. And if you want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So, uh, I, I set this up a few years ago now before, um, uh, the kind of hashtag female filmmaker Friday was a thing on Instagram. I was, it came about because I was working on two jobs at the time. One, um, this was both in the UK, one where there was a really strong female presence, behind the camera in other departments and the other one was not I realized when I was sat on set and checks had been done um, by makeup and costume that when the camera started rolling and I looked around the room there was myself the actress and just a room of guys and I was like huh and I think it was being on 
I had friends who worked in crew that I'd had conversations um, about this with, um, but it really struck me in that moment that, yes, I was surrounded by guys and there's nothing wrong with that, but actually sets, I believe, benefit from having a balance of people on them. Um, and in particular, as a woman, when, well, for anyone, if you're doing certain scenes that are more intimate, you are acutely aware if you are the only woman on that set, uh, even if there's more of a kind of skeleton crew in the room at the time, which there usually is. And so I started asking other people I knew and just asking other women how they got into the profession, because I was also struck by the idea that I don't know if you know where to start as a young woman, uh, well, young, old, anywhere in between, if you wanted to get into the industry, if you don't already have those connections. Like, I'm not from an acting family. It was a very, the whole like scene of acting was very new to me when I got into it. I only learned more about that through going to drama school. Like that was my in. And I was suddenly like, I don't know that you know where to begin if you wanted to become a grip or become a DP or know what the sound department does. And so... I wanted to very simply show women in action in these roles behind the camera. I noticed that there were uh, accounts from directors and DPs that were personal, that were kind of, you know, shots that they'd taken. But you weren't actually seeing women in these roles as much as you do now, just visually. And I also really admire the work that Dina Davis does with her institute of that whole idea of like, if she can see it, she can be it. And so my thing was in a very, very small way of just adding to that mix of like, yes, there need to be more women in crew. That's a conversation that's being had. Changes are being made steadily. But at the time, I felt like we weren't really seeing it enough. And I wanted to just in a small way contribute to that. And I think it's also incredibly inspiring to hear where, how each of these women has got into the industry because it's very different. And so it, I think, dispels the myth that you need to know someone in the industry in order to be welcomed in. Um, I think it can be quite intimidating, actually, to even begin the process of trying to get your foot in the door and understanding what you need to do to do that. And so although Instagram is a visual medium, I was interested to hear women talking about the roles they have and what they love about their job for it to be a positive thing. So yeah, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed keeping it going. And whenever I'm on a job and there are women in crew, I will tell them about it and ask them if I can add them because I just, as I say, I just love to keep adding to what we're already thankfully seeing uh, more of but um yeah it's just it's looking for it there are so many women out there that are exceptional and have so much to offer and contribute to the industry and I think it's very exciting and I'm happy to have worked with some of them uh and Carol we're going to ask you the same question but uh Sonia this is probably a good opportunity to say you know where can people find you? Things are upcoming, you know, if you're, you know, what's a good place to sort of keep up, keep up with you and look for you in the extended lodge universe. I, well, my Instagram, I'm not really, you'll notice I'm not really on the Instagram very much. I think 
these women are far more interesting than I am. You, but my characters are more interesting than I am. I'm wonderfully boring. That's why I'm not really on social media. <laughs> I'm a bit of an introvert, I have to say. But I'm I'm on Twitter. I'm on, um, uh, yeah. If people want to touch base with my Twitter and yeah, do please check out the Instagram and uh, you can kind of follow threads from there to the other women that are on there. And what about anything we can see you on the large or small screen or the stage? I know stage is separate. separate. Oh, stage. Gosh, I pine for the stage. I, alas, not, I shan't be treading the boards anytime soon. Um, though I'm keen to again. Um, <laughs> this job that I've ordered Hungary, it will be on Netflix at some point. <laughs> oh, God, I'm sorry. No, that's um, good. That's a good clue. Hey, we don't want to get yeah. you in trouble. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, um, and uh, yeah, there's, Another gig coming up after this, I also, I'm afraid, can't say anything about yet. But I'm excited by both of them. They're brilliant. And I hope when you know what they are, you enjoy checking them out. And sorry, that's so ridiculously vague. <laughs> Carol, please, over to you. <laughs> please talk about brilliant, Kevin. <laughs> I just, that is uh, just such delightful circular verbiage, Sonia. <laughs> so wonderful to, to go there with you um, again. And uh, so um, I'm on Instagram, but, you know, this it will be a nice catalyst for me. I keep... Um, I'm not, I'm not super active because I, I feel like I need a private one for all of my just inside jokes that my friends will enjoy and bizarrely mundane life. But, um, and then I feel like I need a separate account just for costume design because that's where the, that's mm. where the real adventures are. And I just, I find so much, you know, looking back through projects I've done, like wow you know just just such interesting material and people and places and things to create so maybe you'll make me do that this just speaking it out into the world just to have a design page that would be that would be probably good yes i yes please i would follow that i'd love to see more of that (laughs) yeah this conversation be the catalyst for your uh, your costume Instagram account. Oh my gosh, you guys! I'm the alchemist. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's got to happen. Yes. It's me. <laughs> so um, yeah, and then um, yeah, AMC Kevin can f himself. I'm. It's going to come out this summer, and um, I'm super excited for it. It's just it's it's really wonderful. Beautiful cast and and very creative to, to go to go be with Nina again was a big part of why I went to this show mm. yeah Nina is an alchemist mm. I would she yeah what she does she sort of swan on water just makes it look effortless but you suddenly turn around and go oh my god you have so many plates in the air <laughs> you're mm-hmm. you're making you've got several pots of gold on the go <laughs> and you know endlessly patient and supportive and yeah she's one of the more she's, remarkable people i've really worked with oh, mm. you know as as producers go she's uh she is just remarkable yeah and 
with all of her busyness and the pandemic, she still found time to send us a lovely note and three links pins. So, uh, uh-huh. it was a, it was a highlight of quarantine was receiving that, um, yeah. in some uh-huh. dark times. Well, that brings us to the end of our recap of episode five of Lodge 49 paradise, uh, a deep heartfelt thank you to you both for joining this episode. This is, you know, I'm sure not always easy to retraverse uh, a show that everyone wishes was back on. Um, mm-hmm. And we are, you know, the, I don't know, 37,000th most popular podcast on, on uh, Apple podcasts or whatever. So we are certainly no hotspot stop. So we are deeply appreciative of you joining us. All right. Well, that brings us to a close and, uh, Thank you, and we'll be back in the next episode looking at episode six. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Thank you. This was lovely. So great. Bye.